0: All right. Hey, everybody, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, you're going to need it. So let's go ahead and grab that. Open with me to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we're going to spend our time together this morning. The first eight verses of Nehemiah chapter 2, I'll begin reading for us in verse 1 in just a little bit. I think about this every time I'm uh, blessed to open God's Word. And there's a, there's a little announcement video shown before, and uh, and I appreciate it. It's, it's very kind uh, and encouraging. Uh, But Chad said, he just knows you're going to get a lot out of this message. Well, I hope he's right. All right, so let's hope that's true. If not, you can blame him. All right, so anyway, uh, Nehemiah chapter two, Vaughn Forrest, if you're in the room with me this morning, if you are listening online, if you're listening later on, I am glad and excited, but ultimately I am honored to open God's word with you this morning. That's why we're here. That's why we gather as a church. We gather to, uh, to hear what God has to say. You don't need to hear my opinions. You don't need to hear my take on something. Uh, we need to hear perfect words today. Wherever you are in life, no matter how this week or the season has felt to you, we need to hear a word from God. And the words that are in the Bible are perfect. This is exactly what God wants us to know about Him. Everything that God wants us to know about Him can be found in the Scriptures. So, this series, we're taking a walk through the book of Nehemiah slowly. uh, And the theme up here on the screen, you can see this, is Rebuild, Redeem, Rescue. That's the theme for the whole series. This is the undercurrent of the story of Nehemiah. Like what Nehemiah is doing, what we picked up on last week when Chad preached, Nehemiah is responding not just to bad news that he's gotten about a city that lay in ruins. Nehemiah is responding to a call of God on his life, a call of God on Nehemiah's life to actually physically reconstruct, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to redeem the reputation of God's people and to rescue them because this people, God's people, is lifelong, generational, generationally deep in oppression and exile. And that's a real people group. So what we're talking about today is an actual group of people, a nationality uh, that's not just uh, buried in a history textbook somewhere. This is actually a group of people. And I need to just uh, hit pause and just talk to you very honestly this morning. Uh, The time that we stop in the service where it's not just like, okay, there's singing time and then there's preaching time. And uh, you know I'd, I told the last service that uh, this is not just a, a rerun of a sermon. Like I've never preached, I've preached it one time. Uh, that was about an hour ago. But like this sermon is written specifically because I think this is what God wants to say to you. I think this is what God wants to say to us, to His church. And the time where we give attention supremely to God's word that time is so special because we're actually like this, it's miraculous. What we think is taking place is supernatural. Like it's outside the boundaries of how normal like days and and weeks go because we actually believe that if we hear what God has to say, it'll change something in our hearts and in our minds and that there can be a difference, not just for today, but for forever as a result of the words that we're gonna hear during a sermon. That's why you're here. I suspect, that's why you're here. Maybe uh, you just got brought or drugged to church this morning. I don't know, but that's why we're here. Maybe that's why you're listening later on in the week. We have to be very intentional about what a sermon and that time of, I still call it, big church. I don't know what you call this service when we gather together. I will always call it big church. That's what we called it growing up. Uh, But what this time is for is very particular, and it's for us to hear what God has to say, not to give commentary on current events or even like, you know, just life and times of being a person on planet earth. But because we walk through books of the Bible and we wanna just take our time and hear what God has to say, not just in a sermon, but in a series of sermons, sometimes the biblical text demands that you, um, that you respond to what's actually happening in the world today. What am I saying? Nehemiah was acting on the behalf of a specific people group. Nehemiah is acting. He's responding to a call on his life from God for the people of Israel, this nation. And the reason uh, he's acting is because the nation of Israel had been given land. They had been given land as part of God's covenant with Abram, later Abraham, part of God's covenant with him was not just to call a people to himself, but to give them a place to stay. And I suspect you are probably aware, you know what's going on That the nation of Israel today, like particular that people group, that nation has been getting international attention and rightfully so because of what's going on. So we need to be really clear. As Christians, as people who follow Jesus, we should and can categorically condemn these horrific attacks by Hamas. As Jesus followers, we will never be okay with the killing of women, children, and the elderly because it's barbaric. And that's easy for us, Like that's, a, that's an easy decision for us to make. And look at me, Israel as a nation it is no longer the special locus of God's redeeming work in the world. Because Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel and the new covenant community that's made up of both Jews and Gentiles together. A person is not saved merely because they are genetically related to Abraham. We know this because Paul makes it explicitly clear in his teaching in Romans chapter nine. And our heart breaks and it should break and we are burdened and we should feel burdened and we mourn because the people who are suffering are real people Like the people who are suffering and the people who are sinning are people who are made in the image of God. I told you a few weeks ago, you will never meet, you will never look at somebody who is not created in the image of God. And what we are watching and learning is sad and awful and horrible. And I think it would be fitting for us to just stop for a second and pray. Like we've got to pray. We need to pray that God would give us what we so desperately need. And that is a clear perspective. We need to see how Jesus sees. We need to feel like he feels. We don't wanna just come up with an opinion. We want the Bible to inform our opinions. And we also, we need courage. We need courage to allow God's word and God's will to overcome a couple of things. It takes courage. And we need courage to believe that God's word and God's will can overcome the evil in the world and a very real possibility that we might miss what he has to say today. So would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we ask in Jesus' name, under the authority of the Bible, that you would help, that you would help us, God, help us to reframe our mind and our thinking. Help us to be courageous enough to open our ears and open our hearts and open our minds that you might speak, that we might listen, and then we might actually walk in obedience to your word. God, we also stop and we pray right now for our brothers and sisters, for other image bearers, God, that you would intervene on their behalf, that right and goodness would overcome the evil that is so prevalent and easy to spot in this world. Lord, a simple prayer we pray, have mercy Have mercy, Lord, be kind, be a friend, be a help to everyone who is created in your image. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So we have, we have a lot going on today. This is a, if if this is your first time here at Vaughn Forest, you picked a great one. Uh, And it's because we're doing so many different things. We're going to take communion later in the service. Uh, We're going to celebrate baptism later on in the service. And so I thought, since we're doing a lot of different things, let's do everything different. So what I'd like for you to do is because we need to be clear about what is God's word and the perfect words. So would you stand to your feet and just honor of the hearing of God's word being read today. Would you stand to your feet and let me read for us, beginning in Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, "'Why is your face sad, seeing as you are not sick?' "'This is nothing but sadness of the heart.'" Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may, pass, they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is God's word. You may be seated. The uh, title. I don't share titles of sermons very often. It feels just a little presumptuous on my part. I don't think that the title of the sermon has as much bearing as uh, the scripture that's being taught. But the title of this sermon, it matters. Uh, The title of this sermon is, uh, let me make sure I get it right here, Proper Prior Planning. Proper Prior Planning, wink, wink. All right, so Proper Prior Planning, this idea of uh, a plan is necessary. All right, a plan is necessary. It's not just Uh, It's not just that you want to feel a certain way. Like when I got in my car yesterday to drive down to Montgomery from Tennessee, like when I got in my car to drive, it didn't matter how much I was looking forward to seeing you, although I definitely was, that I had a sermon that I had written and prepared that I had prayed specifically that God would speak to you. However much I felt that, however much I desired that, however much it moves me to think about what we're going to do later together. We're going to celebrate Jesus' crucifixion, we're gonna proclaim his death as he taught us to do. No matter how excited that makes me or how, uh, how enthusiastic I am or how strongly I feel, if I get in my car and I head north instead of south, I will never make it. I just, uh, the roads don't exist. I cannot get here unless I actually plan my route. I need to know what direction I'm going. I need to actually have a plan in place. And this chapter, this half of a chapter of Nehemiah chapter 2, is Nehemiah's outlining of the plan that he has made to actually do something about the situation that has developed in Jerusalem. Nehemiah had a plan, but this plan is not hatched overnight. This is not just, uh, you know, an emotional reaction or an overreaction. Like it would have been very easy for Nehemiah to hear terrible news and then just instantly act or react. But this plan that Nehemiah has come up with, it developed over time, and that matters. Why? Because number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. Pace matters. Pace matters. And we see that Nehemiah is taking his time. He's moving at a godly speed. How do we know that? If we look at verse one again, this is fascinating. The Verse, verse one of Nehemiah chapter two says this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes... So Nehemiah is a great read, not just because of how it locates itself, like geographically, you know this happened in a real place to a real person involving a real people group. But Nehemiah also locates when this takes place chronologically. That month, he says it, he writes it down, Nisan. That month is about four months after the date that he gives in chapter one. So in the first chapter of Nehemiah, he says, in the month of Chislev. So four months later, this means it had been about from November to March, a decent season. For four months between chapter one and chapter two begin. That matters. And the reason it matters is a great question why. It matters because Nehemiah did not just overtly and quickly react to hearing bad news. He took his time. He actually allowed himself the room to sit with the news that he had gotten and to actually develop a strategy to do something about that. He didn't rush off. He didn't make a hasty decision. He wasn't, (sighs) Nehemiah was not less passionate about the people he was attempting to redeem because he took his time. In fact, I think you could make the argument that Nehemiah taking his time actually allowed the plan itself to be effective and pace matters. It matters for Nehemiah in chapter two of this book of the Bible and pace matters for you. The pace at which you live your life matters. It has meaning. And if there's anything I think we need to talk about as Christians, as Jesus followers, it's the pace at which we live our lives. And first and foremost, so pace of life, I, I need to raise my hand. I am chief of sinners in this area. Like I am the worst in the room. I promise you, you might think that you're busy. I am the worst in the room at never being able to sit still, always having to have something programmed, never being able to just allow myself to relax. Like it's not just that I'm, you know, it, unable to relax or sit still. It's that I feel the need for constant movement. I've actually said this sentence to somebody before. I've said, do you want to know how I feel peace when I make progress? Because for Brett, progress equals peace. So I realized that it's really, it's kind of hypocritical for me to talk to you about the pace at which you live your life. But let's be honest. Some of you are even busier than I am. Some of you, I am aware of the fact that you have jobs and you have lives and you have families that require even more than what it requires of me. You work physically harder than I do. You have more on your plate than I do. You have more things to run your kids to. You have more responsibilities with your aging parents. You have more responsibilities with the school and with your job and with the sports and with the extracurricular. I get it. Some of you right now are planning out next week because this is the only time for seven days that you will sit still for 35 minutes. Like, I get it. Fair enough. But what does the Bible actually have to say about the pace at which we live our lives? I'll remind you, it's not silent. The scriptures are not quiet about how quickly we should or should not move through this life. What does the Bible have to say? Paul starts his chapter, the love chapter, which we, we have said that, like right? We know the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. If you go to a wedding, there's like a 50% chance you're gonna hear somebody quote or read 1 Corinthians 13. It lists all the things that love is. But the first thing that he says love is, is love is patient. Love is patient. What's interesting to note is that 1 Corinthians 13 is not a love letter. This is not Paul going out of his way to encourage the church at Corinth. This is Paul rebuking them by saying, you've said, you've done, you've lived as if love is this, but in fact, it's not. Love is patient. Love takes its time. Love is enduring, not just quick. Love is patient, what else? The prophet Micah tells us that there's something actually doable that God requires of us, that he requires of his followers. What does God require of you? Micah 6, verse 8, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Not to run, not to sprint, but to faithfully, day by day, just keep showing up and walking and moving at that pace. 2 Peter 3, nine tells us that the only reason that God hasn't come back to judge the world is because God is patient. And isn't it interesting that even though our Bible has chapters that butt right up next to one another, that it probably took Jesus more than just a few minutes to get from town to town, that he walked at a very human pace, probably never moving faster than five or six miles an hour. The Bible is not silent about our pace of life and about what busyness can create and what a lack of patience demonstrates or tells about us. I love this quote so much. This is from Corey Timboom. She says it like this She goes, If the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. I love that. That's a good quote. If If the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And to be honest, I'm not sure there's a difference. I really don't. I don't know if there's a difference between the two. Our pace of life matters. It did for Nehemiah, and it does for us. We are are the fastest moving, fastest judging generation that has ever walked the planet. We We have the ability. We have the ability to judge quickly, to sum up, to post, to quote, to cut out, to move on from people. Rarely, I mean, the Bible tells me that I'm to take every thought captive, but if I'm being honest because of the pace at which life demands to be lived, most of my thoughts, not only do they not get taken captive, they don't even get a rough draft. It's just whatever I mean, whatever you need to feel, whatever you need to decide, whatever you need to move, whatever you need to say, like you get one shot and then you move on. The Bible tells us that we are to take every thought captive. And I think that one of the reasons that we struggle, and I, the struggle is so obvious, Like it manifests itself in such such obvious symptoms. So many of you, so many of us, we struggle with uh, dysfunctional thought lives. We struggle with anger and anxiety and hopelessness. We struggle with holding a grudge. We struggle with withholding love from somebody. All of those struggles are directly connected to your pace of life because pace of life matters. Now, I need to just talk to, Uh, some of the men in the room because I'm gonna free you up a little bit this morning, okay? I I especially think this is true uh, of men. There is something about when I talk about pace of life and slowing down and being patient and walking and not running, there's something about me saying that that to you sounds passive. I totally get that. I totally get that to the average guy for me to say, you need to slow down, you need to relax, you need to take your time. The image it conjures up for you is a passive man who is abdicating his role in the masculine culture. That's not what I mean. What I do mean is this, patience and perseverance are not enemies of each other. Patience and perseverance are not enemies. It does not make you weak to be patient. It does not make you effeminate or a coward to persevere slowly. I go back to this story over and over again in the first book of the Bible. The first book of the Bible has this reputation, right? Like we think about Genesis and the first thing that comes to our mind when we think about uh, the opening book of the Bible is we think it's the creation account. But Genesis has far more than just how everything started out. Genesis is an account of a group of people more than it is just how the people found a place to live. There's this fascinating story in Genesis chapter 32 of what I think is a great illustration of patient perseverance. And we're talking about the nation of Israel. We should probably figure out where they came from, where they started. Genesis chapter 32, it details the story of a character named Jacob. And Jacob is at odds he's feuding with his brother Esau. And he's so worried about what's going to happen between he and Esau when they finally meet each other, that Jacob, before going to bed one night, he sends everything he has across the river. He sends his family, he sends his people, he sends his possessions, he sends everything he has. He sends it across the river and he crosses back and he spends the night alone. And Genesis 32 details the fact that God sent an angel or God himself to wrestle with Jacob. And it details how Jacob would not let go. Talk about patience. Talk about perseverance. Talk about taking your time. Jacob will not let go of God until he blesses him. The Bible tells us that an angel reaches out and touches Jacob's hip, dislocating the the joint, and that for the rest of his life, Jacob not only walks with a limp, but is given a different name. The name that Jacob is given is Israel, where all the people that Nehemiah is acting on behalf of, they all come from him. They come from a man who was given a physical infirmity that would cause his pace of life to slow down. But that is not all that goes into Nehemiah's plan. Like, yes, he took his time. He didn't hurry. He didn't emotionally react. You know what he did? He prayed. He, his life uh, is detailed there in the Second part of chapter one is what Chad preached last week. He did a great job. But the text that Chad preached last week is really just a record of Nehemiah's private prayer life. In chapter two, the verses that we read, they're really just a spilling out of Nehemiah's private prayers in public. And prayer is non-negotiable. Prayers are non-negotiable. Every single one of us, we are, we are a buzz on our phone from life going completely sideways and off tracks. Like prayer is sanity. Prayer is how we stay in contact and keep relationship and keep company with God. But prayer first and foremost is private. Prayer is private. And man, there's There's a lot I wanna say about this and Lord willing, I'll get to next week because there's a fascinating verse in the second half of this chapter that really speaks to uh, this idea. But let me just sum it up for you real quick. What do I mean when I say prayer is is private? I mean, not that you shouldn't pray before meals, you should. You should pray before meals. Uh, You should pray out loud in church. You should pray with your wife, but prayer should begin in private. Let me tell you why. Why? Because there is a certain kind of joy and it's very specific and you only know it if you've experienced it. But there's a certain kind of joy that only comes when you tell God and God alone. Like when you only tell God about something, when you only tell God about a need that you have, a desire that you have, when you need mercy and you only tell God, there's a certain kind of joy that you only get when you don't tell anybody else and you only tell God. The reason I know that is because you get to experience not just that God hears you and God does hear you. God hears the prayers of his people. He values the prayers of his people. The scriptures tell us in the Psalms that our prayers come as a sweet incense before the Lord, that he's stirred by the words that we use not just prayers of need and not just prayers of adoration, but also our prayers of lament. When we're sad, when we cry out to God and we tell him that we're upset, the psalmist tells us that he actually keeps our tears, that he keeps our tears in a bottle close to him. He prizes how we feel. So our prayers matter to God. And yes, when you don't tell anybody else, but you only tell God and something happens, you're delivered, he answers, he responds. Yes, you feel heard, but it's also a way for you to testify to the fact that he's real. You feel that joy because you didn't tell anybody and nobody else helped. And it only was God who came through. And man, we do, we do this, right? Like we're, we're so guilty of this. I am so guilty of this. I am so good. Maybe you are too. I am so good at talking to everybody in my life and forgetting that it's God who is actually the one who can do something about it. Like I wanna tell everybody how I'm feeling. I wanna tell everybody what I need. I wanna tell everybody what I'm experiencing. But I forget that the only one who can actually do something about how I'm feeling and what I need and what I'm experiencing, that's who I should talk to first and foremost. Nehemiah has a plan to redeem and rebuild and rescue. But that plan only came about through first private prayer. Lane's reading this book. Uh, and it's like a a daily walk through the Psalms by Tim and Kathy Keller. And she, she shared this line with me this past week and it was arresting. Like it was instant conviction. Tim Keller writes that a lack of prayer at best. So at best, a lack of prayer is thoughtless. So on your best day, when you're not praying, it's just, you need to think about it. It didn't occur to you to do it. But at worst, at worst, a lack of prayer shows that you think that there's nothing that God can do. At worst, a lack of prayer says, no, God, I got this. I can handle it. Prayer is private. And then quickly, prayer is persistent. It's persistent. Here's all I'm gonna ask you just quickly. What's the last prayer you prayed more than two times? Fair question. When's the last time that you went back to God again and again? Going back to God over and over again does not improve your chances of him hearing you. You are not wearing God down. You're not like one of my daughters who just keeps asking and asking and asking until I finally give in. You're not wearing him down. You're not improving your chances of being heard. God doesn't have this magic number in his divine mind that if you'll only pray it 61 instead of 60 times, then he'll come through, then he'll answer. You going back to God over and over again, it doesn't increase your chances of being heard. I'll tell you what it does increase. It increases your chances of developing spiritual discipline. And that changes you. You're not changing God when you pray. You're changing you. You're changing how you think about the world, how you think and interact with each other. Prayer must be persistent. It also is, is powerful. Prayer is powerful. And I, I have lived that this past week. I want to tell you about a friend. I want you to write his name down because I need you to pray for him. I need you to pray for my friend, Nathan Knight. About a week ago, Nathan and Bryce and Garrett were all mountain biking. And uh, Nathan, about five minutes before they were done, headed to the parking lot in a trail that he'd ridden more than a dozen times before, he takes a fall, gets thrown off of his bike and lands on his face. He's wearing a helmet by the grace of God, but he lands on his head and is instantly knocked out, just instantly unconscious. And everything that could go right from that point on did. He was with people. He was able to get to the hospital quickly. He was able to get to the, the kind of care that he needed that was going to make things right. But last Sunday morning, I stood with my wife and my daughters and we decided we were gonna pray an easy, but bold and audacious prayer because on Sunday morning, he was still out. He was still unconscious. And so we just prayed simple, simple words. Lord, would you have mercy? Lord, would you help Nathan to wake up? And I promise you, when church was over last Sunday, we get a text from his wife, Holly, and it says, Nathan opened his eyes. He's awake. Praise the Lord. Like, absolutely. We were, like, we, we started crying. We started giving thanks to God in prayer. Like, we couldn't, he answered us. Man, he answered us. Would God have done that? Would Nathan have woken up had we not prayed? I don't know. I, I actually don't know. Was it because of the medical care he was given? I don't know. Was it just that's what happens in these kind of accidents? I don't know. I don't know if it changed Nathan's circumstances, but it definitely changed my heart. It definitely changed my daughter's hearts. It matters. Prayer is powerful. Jesus' half-brother James tells us that the prayers, I memorized it in KJV, I'll only know it in KJV, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. They achieve much. And you're like, well, am I righteous? Yes, you are. You certainly are righteous because that's what you got when Jesus took your sin. He gave you his righteousness. Prayer is a non-negotiable because before Nehemiah ever told the king what he wanted, he told God what he needed. The reason we pray is not just because we want God. The reason we pray is because we wanna know God. We wanna know who he is. We wanna discover his character. The reason we pray is because we want to know God, not because we want God to know what we want. But it's all dependent on him. This all depends on God. Third thing, take a note, write this down. God's hand precedes, And I would add, I should have written always, like it's always, God's hand always precedes tangible blessing. Look at verse eight again, I love this. If if your conscience allows you to write in your Bible, you should underline the last phrase of verse eight that says this, the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand of my God was upon me. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in Nehemiah chapter two. God works, then we respond. God moves and then we act. God indicates something that's true of himself and therefore true of us. And then we react to what we know about him. He indicates, then we do. God works, then we respond. I love that so much. Let's unpack it just a little bit. We're almost done. The good hand of my God was upon me. Part one, it's a good hand. God's hand is good. And this word good implies power. Like it's good enough. Like it's able God's good hand is what Nehemiah is talking about. This is his power. This is God's actual ability coming through. This is his tangible, manifest presence and power. This is the power that we see in Exodus chapter two when he parts seas. And this is the power that's made manifest in the person of Jesus in Luke chapter eight. You remember the story that the disciples think they were gonna lose their life. Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat. They come and wake him up and they say, don't you care that we live or die? Jesus walks to the top of the boat, top deck, I don't know. But Jesus walks outside and he actually, the scriptures say in Luke 8, he rebukes the storm. Like not just calm down, but that's enough. That's the manifest power of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And to Nehemiah and to some of you, man, you know that. You know that. That's Nehemiah's motivation. That's his purpose. Nehemiah is relying not on himself, but he's relying on God. He calls him "my." My God. This is what makes it personal. This is God's knowableness. And you know why Nehemiah was able to relate to God on such a personal level, when he needed him the most, when he was desperately crying out. It's not the first time Nehemiah's ever talked to God. When Nehemiah goes before the king and is explaining his plan, it's not the first time that he's talked to God. Nehemiah has been relating to God personally. Personally in prayer. And you know this, this, if I could tell you anything about God, he is not far away. He is not far off. He's not aloof. He's not disconnected. God is intimately and intricately connected and invested in every single space of your life. And then he says, the good hand of my God was upon me. He could feel it. Like the presence was was felt. It was tangible. What What that communicates to me is that Nehemiah knows what it's like without that hand. He knows what it's like without feeling that. And he is not about to go through this big plan to redeem and restore and rebuild an entire country, an entire nation city. He's not about to enter into this endeavor without knowing that God is with him. And there's, there's no more time. I, I, we, have, we have no more time. We have so much to do today, but I just, I just have to pause for a second and ask, like, do you, do you know the difference? Do you know the difference between when you can sense God's presence, when you feel his hand upon you, do you know that difference? Is it recognizable to you? Some of you in the room, you don't. You don't recognize it. And the reason you don't is because you've never felt it. God's good hand is not upon you because you've used your hands to keep his hands off that you've rebelled and you have said no enough. And today is the day of salvation that you say, I'm done doing this on my own. I want your good hand upon me. I need your good hand for the rest of my life. For some of you in the room, it's different. Some of you in the room, the band's gonna come out in just a second. For some of you, the reason that you needed to hear today is because there is some time, some moment, some event in your life that's happened in the past that caused you to question and wonder if he's good. He is church, he's good. You can trust him. You can rely on him. You can, you can trust that his plan and his ways and his goodness is clear and you can tell. And maybe you're here today and it's not that you need to experience the relationship with God for the first time because we're about to take communion and this is a meal that's only for Jesus followers. It is. This is not for just anybody and everybody. This is a meal that's just for the redeemed people of God. And you need to join our family before you come and eat at our table but maybe that's not your step today. And maybe it's not a step of rebuilding some trust that's, that's gone away in your life when you think about the Lord. Maybe today you have a decision to make. You have, you have something that needs to be done. You have a step that you need to take and you have put it off. This is the Bible saying to you, don't move forward without praying. You may not get a clear word. You may not get a clear sign, but don't move forward before you stop and pray you don't have to be in as much of a hurry as you think you do. You're not promised another day, but you don't have to hurry. So for a moment, I want you to bow your head, close your eyes, before we, have, before we take communion together. Would you just be honest before the Lord? Would you just be honest today? And you would say, Lord, I, this is the first, I hear prayer is a big deal. This is the first one of mine to you and I need to to invite you into my life I need you to step in to my heart I need you to come out of heaven and come into my life and save me from my sin maybe your prayer is something different maybe your prayer is God I I stopped trusting you because I was hurt and I was angry and I was mad but you are good I see your goodness all over the Bible and all over my life I see the blessings that I have and I know that those come directly from you and for those of you who know that decision that you have Uh, you've wondered, is it time? Is it time to make, maybe just pause and commit to pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us? Would you help us take a next step? Whatever that looks like for us today. Would you help us to trust you? To take our time with you? Would you help us to communicate with you? And to trust and know that every good thing in our lives, it comes from you. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, church, in just a few moments, uh, we're gonna take communion together. But what I'd like to ask you to do is that when, when we start to worship, I'd like to ask you to rise from your seat and make your way to one of the tables that's all across the auditorium. Right, under these covers, you're gonna find a, a piece of bread and a cup. If you'll take those elements back to your seat and then wait. Because after we sing, we're gonna take communion together. So take your elements and then wait. But while you wait, Worship, while you wait, be honest, be honest before the Lord. So I ask you to rise to your feet, make your way to a table, take your elements, make your way back to your seat, and I'll come back and give us more instructions in a minute.